save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and thank you so much for joining me on Yoga Birth Babies. I am so excited to have Tina Cassidy here today. We're going to talk all about her book, Birth, The Surprising History of How We Are Born. But before we get into our Q&A, I just want to give you a little background of who Tina is. Tina spent her formative years as an award-winning journalist writing about everything from business to politics to fashion. In 2005, she left her editing post at the Boston Globe to publish her first book, the internationally acclaimed Birth, The Surprising History of How We Are Born. Her second book, Jackie After O, one remarkable year when Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis defied expectations and rediscovered her dreams, rounds out Tina's interest in the various stages of a woman's life, from motherhood to empty nester and beyond. I am so excited to talk to Tina. So when I first reached out to her, I was letting her know that her book is actually part of our teacher training curriculum because I think it's so important for prenatal teachers and birth workers to understand where birth came from, how we evolved or maybe haven't all the way through the through our history. So I was so incredibly honored and happy when she said yes, she'd be on our podcast. So welcome, Tina. I'm so glad to speak to you today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to jump right in um, from some of the questions I already organized. And the first one will be, what prompted you to turn your journalistic skills towards childbirth? Well, I had a baby born by an unexpected cesarean. And after that birth, my husband said to the doctor, what would have happened in this situation 500 years ago? So she gave a, a pretty gruesome answer. And I was pretty upset to hear the answer. And also, I was pretty unhappy to have had a cesarean when I didn't really think I needed it. Um, so it, it pushed me to go do some research and figure out, you know, how we got here, basically. And I was driven to write a book that would put uh, modern childbirth in historical and cultural context. And basically, what I found is that every generation... And every culture has its own way of giving birth, which is pretty fascinating to me since it's the same ancient physiological process that's been going on since the beginning of humanity. Well, absolutely. You know, the body does change, has changed and evolved a little bit, but for the most part, you know, humans are humans and our body has produced all this time. What were your hopes for writing this book and do you feel they were achieved? I don't really know. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I don't really know that I had any specific hopes except to better understand how we got here um, for myself. I, it has been a really fascinating process, though, to see how other people have um, appreciated the book and learned from it as well. I think it really came at a time when the C-section epidemic peaked in America, and it's still sort of peaking around the world as other developing nations uh, look toward the West um, for what they think is, uh, you know, the best possible medical course out there. Um, but I think, you know, the book came at just the right time when people were seeking for more answers. And also, you know, when I say that that birth reflects the culture and the time and place where it happens, you know, in some ways it was true of this book as well, because 
um, what was going on in our culture and still is, uh, is that, you know, we've become much more technologically focused over the last decade and birth reflects that as well. Um, all kinds of interesting conversations happening around feminism and, and women's roles. Um, you know, that's not something that ended in the 70s. And again, birth is reflecting that as well. So as women are feeling more empowered, they want to have more input and control over their own birth experience. And so again, this book has helped a lot of people, um, you know, to understand the, the bigger context. Absolutely. I completely agree. Has, since you studied this and you studied the history of birth, has it affected your outlook on current birth trends and have you become more of a birth advocate? Because I know you said you got interested from your own history and I remember reading in your book your family's history of birth. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the very first moment when I thought I would write a book about the history of childbirth, I sat down with the woman in my family and said, okay, look, I think I'm going to do this, but can you all just tell me about your own birth experiences? Because we had never really had that conversation directly. I had only heard, you know, how horrible everybody's birth was. And so even starting at that place, like, why can't we all have an enjoyable birth um, helped to inform the book. Um, have I become more of a birth advocate? Yeah, I think because I certainly didn't set out to be one. I, you know, honestly approached this from a very um, even-handed way, looking at the evidence. I mean, I spent almost a year of my life reading scientific journals from around the world, looking at the evidence-based protocols and recommendations. And when I got to the end of it, I realized that we actually don't follow the evidence-based recommendations as often as you would think. And that to me was shocking. Now, I know lots of people who work in the medical field who, you know, because they've been trained and because they're on the front lines every day, their practice evolves, can evolve away from the evidence-based approaches to things, and they're comfortable with that. But I think as an outsider giving fresh eyes to this, it was really um, apparent that we had strayed quite a bit from evidence, and all sorts of other things were playing into how childbirth happened, including, as I mentioned, culture, religion, um, politics, uh, legal issues, um, malpractice issues. So, you know, it wasn't just a woman having a baby. We were, we have been dumping all of this other cultural burden um, onto the process so that it's not pure anymore. And I'm not saying it, it needs to be pure. And by no means am I saying that, um, you know, we should mistrust the medical community when we need it, when we're having an emergency and they certainly know how to handle it. Um, the bottom line is that we have become a culture where birth is always an emergency. And I mm -hmm. think that that is unfortunate and it is having great consequences. It can make birth more dangerous for low risk women. It can make the experience much less pleasant um, and also much more painful for mothers. And, um, you know, I think it's also much more expensive. We have spent so much money on childbirth in this country. And, and in recent decades, we're actually not improving outcomes as a result. So what are we doing? If no one's happy, we're spending more money, we're not having better outcomes, and it's a, it's a terrible experience, um, maybe it's just time to rethink it. I completely agree. I actually wrote an essay about this, that the U.S. spends the most out of any industrial country on birth, and yet our maternal outcome is very low compared to other countries. It was kind of scary. I think we were above Slovakia or maybe Slovakia was above us. It was, it was not good. That's right. One thing I was really impressed because I've read a lot of birth books. Um, you really did approach it and present the material from a very journalistic standpoint. You didn't like, you weren't swaying one side or the other. I read another book that used to be in our curriculum, much about women thinking about how they want birth. And it was pretty peppered with uh, a strong opinion and some of my teacher trainees were a little put off by how strongly worded it was. I really respect that you gave the information without coming out of a soapbox. You're like, here it is, here's the evidence, here's the history, and now you can digest it and take it in the direction you want. That was really, um, I think, just helpful for people so they didn't feel they were being pushed in one camp or the other. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that, and I, I guess I would also just say that one of the other things that I realized while I was reporting out this book is that 
women themselves bring their own cultural knowledge and um, sort of institutionalization, if you will, to their own birth experience and sometimes often have their own views on how they want that birth to be or how it should be. And so you kind of can't win the argument by coming about about it by telling them how you think it should be. Right. Um, and you just have to you just have to present the evidence. And that for me was the most stunning transformative experience that I had because I didn't have a point of view going into this except that that stunk. <laughs> and um, you know, getting to the end of it and seeing the evidence, then I could say, well, actually, now I know why it stunk. Um, you know, it it it, it stunk. Um, with the exception of the fact that I ended up with a, an awesome son. Um, now I have uh, another awesome son um, whose birth experience, by the way, was much different because um, if I may just add, you yes. know, after our, uh, after that first child was born, um, I didn't, I didn't think I'd have another baby because it was that unpleasant and I didn't really want to go through that again. And then, you know, life happens and I found myself pregnant again and uh, decided to approach that childbirth experience completely differently. Do you mind kind of, for me, deviating out of some of our questions, but how did you approach it differently? Well, since I had already had uh, one C-section, the thinking at that time, this was in 2008, was that if you had one C-section, you're probably going to have a second one if you have a hospital birth because they made it so, they still make it very challenging to kind of get around all the protocols and so forth, you know, signing tons of legal paperwork, you know, getting the stern lecture from the doctor about uterine rupture and other things that could potentially go wrong. But I had done enough um, research on uh, VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, that I felt comfortable with the very low risk, less than 1% of something bad happening because I felt that the risk was actually higher for something going wrong in the hospital setting because of what's called an iatrogenic um, intervention. So it basically means that the interventions cause further crisis in a birth um, experience. So I sort of felt like the safest way for me to have a baby was to just be left alone. So I chose a home birth midwife, and um, she was someone with a tremendous amount of experience who had cut her chops in Africa and was able to deliver, uh, assist in the birth of babies very safely under really harsh circumstances. So it, that alone, the whole pregnancy experience under the care of a midwife was quite different from what I had experienced with an obstetrician, um, and it was really wonderful. And I think she also kind of helped me get over the C-section in many ways so that I was prepared um, for my second son. And then, you know, we had a home birth and it was just the most remarkable experience I've ever had. It changed me as a person. I think it, you know, changed our family. It was, my husband was so over the moon about it because he didn't realize a birth could be that wonderful. He had experienced the C-section as well. And and, um, you know, was fairly traumatized by that. So, you know, it was just, it was just tremendous. And, you know, having gone through that experience, which when I had finished writing the book, I, I actually end the book by saying, you know, I didn't think I could ever be brave enough to have a home birth because it's really how I felt at the time. But then when I was faced with this decision with another pregnancy, what do I do now? I didn't think I could go to the hospital. I wasn't brave enough to go to the hospital. So my own opinion had changed 180 degrees. And, um, you know, I definitely feel like I made the right decision. I will say, you know, where a woman gives birth needs to be her own choice. Mm -hmm. You have to be comfortable where you're giving birth, because if you're not comfortable, you know, you're, you have a hormonal response to fear and it slows things down. It makes it more painful. It takes longer. Um, so you have to be, you have to be in the right frame of mind for it. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but if, if there are women listening who are open-minded to that experience, I will say it's, it's one of the most wonderful things that I've ever done. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Calendar. Let's be real. Running a household can be exhausting and chaotic and finding the perfect Mother's Day gift. It's not exactly a no brainer until now. 
The Skylight Calendar is the best way to organize the family and give everyone, especially mom, some peace of mind to enjoy the things that matter most. The Skylight Calendar is a smart, touchscreen calendar that keeps track of and manages the chores, dinner planning, groceries, and to-dos for the whole family. The Skylight Calendar automatically syncs each family member's digital calendars and displays them all together on one color-coded touchscreen. It even doubles as a digital picture frame, so you can finally share all those special moments that are just sitting on your phone. As a limited time offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightcal.com slash easy. I'm so glad your second birth was a healing experience for you. I do hear that a lot from... Uh, women that had a traumatic first birth. Uh, myself, my first one was really long, and I, and I had to put a lot of work into preparing mentally and emotionally for the second. But I do hear that often. If the first one was hard, sitting there and looking at what can I do differently so that I can heal from that and move on. I'm really glad your second one was so great. Thanks. So now that you've looked at the history of birth, so I read your book and I reread it. I read it a while ago. Um, there are certain things that were extremely shocking and disturbing. As you dove into the history and research, what was the most shocking thing for you? I guess the most shocking thing for me was, um, well, there were many, you're right. Uh, but it was the repetition of history where you see men trying to control the birth process and the outcome, making it worse off for women. And so that's more of a theme that was shocking. Um, but, you know, it started with male midwives who were also barber surgeons. They had no, you know, they weren't even allowed to look at a woman from the waist down. So they were doing all of their magic under a sheet and everything else. I mean, it was ridiculous. And women, you know, allowed it to be possible um, because that was the culture at the time. Um, I think the other thing that was shocking to me was another theme where, the upper class at that time kind of set the birth trend, whether it was, you know, Queen uh, Victoria um, making pain relief fashionable in childbirth, you know, that really set the tone for a whole wave and generation of mm -hmm. women trying to follow suit. Um, and, you know, to some degree, you can still look at it this century and say, you know, that's still going on where you might have a celebrity. You know, if you go back to the to the 90s when Madonna was giving birth with um, scheduled C-sections, that became all the rage. And then, you know, you have some celebrities who are um, really focusing on more natural births and that becomes you know, more popular, um, at a particular time. So, you know, there's just, just seeing these trends happen over vast expanses of time and space and they keep repeating themselves. Um, you know, it makes you feel like we're just along for the ride. Yeah. You know, it's again, it's still the same ancient physiological process, but there's all this stuff swirling around. And once you see it in that larger context, um, you know, you can start to feel really manipulated by it. Yeah, I think that you're right. I mean, there's still a lot of manipulation. I don't want to use the word manipulation. Um, control or organization or management by the care provider. And that mm -hmm. I think one has to be mindful of. My personal sh most shocking, I think, were the instruments that were being used. Uh, yeah. Was it the craniot craniotomy and the, and the breaking of the pubic bone? Um, just on a physical level, when I read that, I just recoiled it was yeah it makes you want to cross your legs and curl yeah up and, and it just seemed gruesome i mean the way it they is, described yeah. breaking this the cranium of the newborn or the fetus and oh yeah that was um it, you're right the the theme the repeating theme definitely shocking i guess i went for the more like visceral reaction absolutely <laughs> um, so you know since i have a you know fair amount of understanding of birth nowadays one thing that I noticed you're like x-ray being used almost 60 years ago was determined unsafe cytotech being used for VBACs. They later realized uterine rupture, even the shaving of the pubic hair. They realized the care providers realized increased chance of infection. So these are just a few examples of things that arise after the fact in your research and opinion are some practices that are occurring now. Would you be surprised if in years to come they were deemed detrimental? 
No, uh, I would not be surprised at all. Again, this is the history that repeats itself. I think that, um, you know, there, there are lots of instances. One, um, you know, there's there are conflicting studies about the safety of ultrasounds, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe one is fine or two is fine. You know, there are some extreme cases where women get ultrasounds um, very, very frequently, and some even have what you might call vanity ultrasounds that are a little bit more potent, you know, 3D or 4D or what have you. Um, you know, I guess my, my feeling is if it's not absolutely necessary, just try to leave it alone. Um, because history does show that we often find, well, we were, we were interfering with the process in some way that we could not have even imagined at the time. Um, I think the uh, the the very high C-section rate is another thing that we may look back on in time and say, wow, we were so off base there. You know, it makes um, uh, additional C-sections later down the line very dangerous. Um, you know, it might, uh, in a backlash fashion, as it was with me, cause more women to uh, avoid going to the hospital or getting a certain kind of medical treatment. So, yeah, I think, you know, when anything kind of gets pushed to the extreme, there is often, you know, the pendulum swings back again and, um, you know, lots of lots of instances. I think a, a big one is women laboring in bed. Mm-hmm. That has already been proven to impede labor, make it more painful. And I think, you know, it's one reason why we have such a high epidural rate, um, you know, in the 90s in some hospitals, because um, giving birth sitting on your or laying on your back or on your side in bed hooked up to fetal monitors, which is why the reason why women are in bed is just so that they can be monitored. Um, is not a natural position for any mammal. I mean, a, a dog or a cat or a monkey couldn't give birth in that position either. It's just, you know, it's just not what mammals do. So, um, yeah, I think that there are probably 50 more examples like that that we could come up with if we <laughs> had the time. What do you think about Pitocin? Um, Pitocin can, you know, can serve its purpose under the right yes. circumstance, but it can also, it as has been proven time and again, it makes contractions really strong and super painful. So it can be one of those interventions that causes a cascade of other necessary interventions. So, you know, if your contractions are, if your uterus is that hyperstimulated, you might need an epidural to, um, to allow you to tolerate that extreme pain. Um, and then now you're in bed with a hyperstimulated uterus. And so, you know, you're going to open yourself up to, um, possibly needing a C-section because uh, people who are induced tend to have a higher C-section rate because the baby can get distressed more quickly because the baby doesn't have time to recover between contractions. Mm-hmm. So again, it just shows that, you know, everything we do that interferes with childbirth can have a consequence. And, you know, sometimes those interventions are 100% necessary in an emergency situation, but I think we have come to believe that every birth is an emergency, and and that's where the fault lies because I it's not completely agree. Not every and you're right. There are times where thankfully we're not back where they're going to craniotomy, um, but we have ways and skills to take care of a baby and mom. But I do think they're a little bit abused. What are your thoughts on the suppression or lack of utilizing midwives in the U.S. compared to other countries? Because you said for your second birth you took a dramatic turn from the direction of your first birth. Yep. I, I believe that is one of the greatest tragedies of our childbearing days, um, modern childbearing days, because midwives throughout history, midwives were the only birth attendant for, you know, really since the beginning of humanity up until about a hundred years ago. And the amount of knowledge that they had, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't always book knowledge, but it was passed down from generation to generation, neighbor to neighbor, family to family, door to door, birth to birth. And it was the, the kind of knowledge that, you know, doctors aren't taught in medical school today. Um, you know, just one example of this is that there are traditional midwives from around the world who will know how to assist in a breach vaginal delivery. Most obstetricians aren't even taught how to do that in medical school today. So on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, breech birth could be much more dangerous. They should all just be C-section. Fine. I I disagree with that. But um, you could also make the argument that shouldn't doctors know how to do that anyway, just in case of 
an emergency situation. I mean, what if the mother's in the parking lot and it's happening, you know? I mean, so it's just, um, and, and what if we could still uh, assist a breached birth safely and avoid a C-section? Then isn't everybody winning in that situation? So there is a lot of knowledge that has been lost. And I think that you know, we went for many decades alienating midwives, and it's only been since the 70s that we've started to try to turn it back around again. Um, you know, I think, you know, and statistics and studies have shown repeatedly that having midwifery care, um, even in a hospital setting, um, produces better outcomes, gives better support for mothers and babies, um, you know, it, and it's in true with doulas as well. It's been scientifically proven that births can be um, faster and less painful if a woman has continuous support, whether from a doula or a midwife who also serves in a doula type of role. Um, you know, women never gave birth alone anywhere in the world, except for, you know, one or two very sort of small, um, you know, somewhat freakish cultures, because our bodies are meant to give birth surrounded by people we know and places that are comfortable to us. Um, and, you know, if you think about that, it's only in the last hundred years or so that women have given birth in the hospital. It's kind of when things really started to to unravel um, and become more, more painful. Um, and so we've had to build a whole construct around a hospital birth that wasn't necessary before. Um, and so, you know, it's it makes me sad that women now have to pay um, extra for doula support, you know, whereas, you know, a hundred years ago, you would have your whole family around you to support you. It didn't cost anything, you know, and now it's only the, the realm of, of the rich or the super educated who even know that they should be seeking out a service like that mm -hmm. or can be allowed to have a service like that. I mean, I hate even to use that word. Women should not have to even think about what they can be allowed to do during childbirth. You know, it's their body. It's their, um, it's, they, they, women instinctively know what's best for them and their babies. Um, so, you know, it's not having midwives, um, be pervasive in this culture. Um, it definitely makes me sad. They are some of the smartest, grittiest, um, most supportive and loving, um, group of people I've ever met. I completely agree. And one thing that I'll say is that I don't think everyone understands having a midwife, having an obstetrician, not just that they're different skills, but they're actually different approaches to yeah. seeing birth. You know, the midwifery approaches, they innately believe birth is natural and normal and can open on its own, where the more pathological is, like you said, it doesn't have to be an emergency, but yet it's looked at as a medical problem. So it when, is man. Yeah, yeah, so it's a very, it's not even just the midwife versus the obstetrician, should they even be versed or comparatively, but I don't know if everyone understands when you hire a midwife, it's a completely different view of birth, and you also get very different care. I know um, I had both. I had an OB on call um, for my births, but I was with a home birth midwife, and just the appointments, even though I love my OB and he's very open and very generous with his time, it's a very different uh, approach. And it is. Yeah. Um, I remember with, um, I had a female OB and I thought, um, for, for my first son and I thought that, you know, I had made a great decision because she was a woman and she was relatively young and she had young, um, children of her own. So, you know, I thought that she was really going to understand what, what I was going through as a first time mom. And, um, you know, I just, I found she was perfectly nice and obviously quite smart and driven given, um, everything that you have to go through to get through med school and be a mom and be working those crazy hours and so forth. But, um, you know, the appointments were rushed. They were very matter of fact. She went down her checklist. Uh, you know, a nurse would do 90% of it and then she'd come in at the end and say, do you have any questions? You know, you don't, you don't want to sound stupid. So, you know, unless there was something really pressing, you'd be like, nope, everything okay. She'd say yes. And then that would be it. Um, I didn't really even know how it would be different with, with a midwife. I just knew that I, I needed a different approach. Um, so what I found with um, choosing a home birth midwife was I would go to her office um, once a month and later uh, once a week. Then it well, became biweekly and then weekly toward the end. And we would just sit for an hour. She would say, you know, feel free to step on the scale if you want. Um, 
you know, how are you feeling? What's new? What's going on? You know, she would ask me questions about, you know, how's my older son doing? What are you eating? And it was really just a get to know you. We were building a relationship. You know, this wasn't about checking blood work or, or anything. I mean, she could tell from looking at me and, you know, measuring me and, you know, palpating my belly, how things were going. Um, really what this was about is getting me comfortable with her as if she were a member of the family. So that when birth night happened, it's almost always a night, by the way, <laughs> um, uh, another fun fact from the book. Uh, so when that happened, you know, I, I was going to feel like it wasn't a stranger coming into my home and I had nothing to worry about. And I really didn't appreciate that until much later um, in the birth. Um, and still to this day, you know, I, I reach out to her on her birthday, send her Christmas cards. Um, I send her notes about my kids. And, and now, you know, my older son is almost 13. So, you know, it's not a relationship that I could have imagined having kept with an OB. Um, you know, obviously, if there was ever anything wrong, I knew that she took it seriously and, uh, you know, would, would get me to a hospital and have relationships with doctors so that it would be a seamless transition and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's a lot, of, it's, it's a lot more about having a relationship, um, with someone who is knowledgeable, um, than anything else. Well, why do you think, uh, first of all, I agree with everything you said. Uh, why do you think though the U S really underutilizes midwives compared to other countries? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I didn't really understand that either. I, I had to go back and look at the history and see what happened to midwives before I could understand, you know, why they're not around in the same way. I mean, it starts hundreds of years ago when, as I mentioned, men started to get in on the act. And, um, you know, they there were fees to be had. Um, there were royal births to attend and, you know, fame and notoriety and, and so forth. And so slowly but surely they started to, um, you know, invade this territory. And once the, the medical industry became much more uh, formed, especially in the U.S., goes back about a century as well. Um, and this idea of pain relief and childbirth um, came up as an invention. Um, women were seeking pain relief, um, and they had to go to a you know a specially trained person to get it. So midwives would have used lots of other. Um, means to alleviate pain. Um, but again, it, it, became, it kind of came out of fashion. So it, it was a problem from both directions. One was it was falling out of fashion because men were coming in and saying, we're better and we charge more. And so therefore it must be a better product. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then hospitals came on the scene as well, kind of all at the same time. So, you know, once once the medical establishment kind of took over for birth, you know, midwives started to die off. They couldn't find jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, many of them had come in America anyway, were were relatively recent immigrants who came with knowledge from their old countries. And, um, you know, that's that started to die off. Um, there was also an aggressive campaign against midwives that the medical establishment put forth. And so. You know, to ask the question today, what happened to all the midwives and why don't we use them in hospitals? It's because, you know, it was like the enemy. And in many, in many instances, you know, I know many um, certified professional um, midwives or certified nurse midwives who work in hospital settings, and they often feel like outsiders there um, because they do have a, a, a traditionally different approach around attending women, supporting women believing that birth is natural, not that birth is an emergency. So it is a cultural clash that happens. Um, you know, some of the, the more progressive um, teaching hospitals do welcome midwives, and they understand what midwives can bring to the table for low-risk women. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's terrific. I think that there are so many other opportunities for hospitals to employ midwives um, and doulas as well. It's just a shame that it's not more widespread than it is. Yeah, I get a lot of, since my studio's in New York City, we have a lot of international students that come, whether they're partners here for work and then they're here for a little bit. But I've had many surprised that they have a hard time finding a, uh, a midwife, not even home birth midwife, just a midwife, because back in whichever country they're from, it seems to be more the predominant role of care. So they're always a little taken back by that. 
Right. Yeah. And, you know, the history of the medical profession has been different in other countries. You know, in, in the UK, for example, the National Health Service uh, relies on midwives to be the birth attendants. I mean, you know, Kate Middleton had midwives. Um, she would not use an what You wouldn't use an OB there unless there was an absolute emergency. Um, so that's just something that is, again, deeply ingrained culturally. The same for the Netherlands, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, by the way, about a third of all women still give birth at home um, and uh, and love it that way. And it's something that is, you know, really at the center of their culture where they, you know, value and respect women. Women are viewed as equal in so many ways. And, and the center of the home is um, is just also culturally important. So, you know, it's um, it's really interesting. It's sad that people have a hard time finding midwives in the U.S. They do. I find that sometimes, you know, the students don't usually come to me until, you know, a little beyond their first trimester. And I know a lot of the home birth midwives are so sought after that if you don't get them right away, so say someone comes to me 14, 16 weeks, they may have a really hard time, even if they want a home birth, securing someone for their, their due date. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. So I'm going to shift a little bit to something that really this one story in your book kind of twirled my head a bit. So hospital protocols. So one story that jumped out to me, it was the antidote about the American um, anthropologist Margaret Mead. So I had no idea her situation until you talked about in your book. So here's a woman who understood and deeply respected the natural process of childbirth, having witnessed it in remote villages all around the world. And she, I love that she armed herself with the breastfeeding doctor, Dr. Spock, and she advocated her for herself. And she sought out a doctor who she thought believed and supported her and requested not to have anesthesia. And she still found herself fighting against hospital protocols and negotiating. And now as a doula, this is like 60 years later, I'm still seeing women, they, you know, they arm themselves with the doula, they, they, have their research to find the best care provider that has the statistics, but yet it seems like the story hasn't changed. You know, so many women will be like, you know, I, I got myself there. I, I was educated and yet they're still negotiating hospital protocols. Why do you believe women are still struggling with this? Because the hospital culture is the hospital culture. They have their system and you're just a part of it. You come in on that day and they don't, they don't want your, you know, they don't want to be disrupted. They don't want your birth plan. <laughs> by your birth plan. And, you know, I, I, I really hate to sound cynical at all, but I spent many, many, many days inside hospitals working behind the scenes, you know, looking at how birth happens and, and is supported and so forth. And, you know, so I would be in the break room with the, um, anesthesia team and, you know, the OB team and the nursing team. And, you know, there'd be little like jokes on the, on the, um, cork board that would say things, you know, it basically like, cartoons of women, um, coming in with their birth plan. And, you know, one said, you know, if, if you drive a, like three things that make it more likely, you're going to have a C-section, you have a birth plan, you drive a Volvo. I don't remember what the third thing was, but you get the idea. Like yeah. they see you coming with the birth plan and they're laughing. They're really laughing at you. They're like, Oh, here we go again. Um, you know, and I don't really think that that's changed, um, in, in recent years at all. And, you know, one, one little thing that I had, um, just thought would make birth feel more comfortable for me with my first son was just to wear my own nightgown instead mm-hmm. of the Johnny, which I just find so dehumanizing for other people. It's no big deal, but I just, I hated the thought of it. And, um, you know, I said, is it okay if I wear it? And like the nurses, they literally laughed at me and then they all went in the hall and talked about it. And they're like, sure, honey, you can wear your own nightgown. And I think that they were right then and there saying she's going to have a C-section. Talk about <laughs> not know? instilling so, confidence. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I, um, I, it does happen. I think it's just, it made me realize that there's a system that you can't fight when you are in a vulnerable position, like a, a pregnant woman in labor. I mean, you just, you can't, it's not, you shouldn't have to be arguing with anyone about what you want to happen at that point. And the, even the idea, you know, I realize now, even the idea of writing something in a birth plan is the foundation for an argument because you know that someone probably is going to say, you should have an epidural when you don't even want to hear it. You're just like, please just support me in a natural birth. I think I can get through the pain on my own if you just hold my hand, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really hard to do that when someone keeps asking you every five minutes if you're ready for your epidural because that's their job. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely challenging. I think it's, it's another reason why more women are increasingly looking at, um, birth center or home birth options just because they do feel respected. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a birth plan with my second baby. I, you know, I had spent all those hours talking to my midwife and her, her mostly telling me everything was going to be fine and not to, not to worry. Um, and that's really what you want in a caregiver is to feel their confidence and knowledge, um, you know, shine through you and, and, and just put you at ease so you can do your job. I mean, a woman in labor has a really big job to do and, you know, left alone with support and encouragement, she's going to do just fine the vast majority of the time. I absolutely agree. One thing I remember learning from my mentor that she always instructed if the woman didn't want an epidural or would think, you know, let me see what I really want it, she would instruct the partner to be at the door. So as the nurse or anesthesiologist wanted to talk about it, the partner would stop and say, thank you so much. We'll let you know when we need you. We'll absolutely let you know. Because it's like offering someone on a diet some chocolate. You know, like you're... Like, you're in discomfort. And then to have it offered, you know, even the most... Um, the dogma person saying like, I don't want this at some point you're like, Hmm, maybe I do. So yeah, right. I think it's getting that's, your whole team. That is typically what happens. And it's great advice, um, from your mentor, but at the same time, it breaks my heart because shouldn't your birth partner be standing by your side, supporting you Yeah. as opposed to standing guard at the door. I mean, there's something wrong with that picture. Yes. Yes. Well, certain things in childbirth, having read your book, definitely have changed for the better. Like we're no longer tying women down and drugging them. That's a good thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Partners are now allowed to be in the room and there's a little bit more choice in management. Uh, You know, the birthing suites are a bit more appealing, although still a little on the ugly side at some times. Where do you see the biggest change still needs to happen and what changed the most for the better so far? I would say the biggest change that needs to happen is that there should be more midwives attending birth everywhere in the world. And um, I think that we are seeing very slow progress around that over the last three decades or so. Um, I think that, you know, this this next generation will be the make or break one. Um, you know, I do think that with recent changes in healthcare, national healthcare um, legislation, where we are Um, focusing more on outcomes, um, you know, keeping, you know, in the case of childbirth, keeping the mother and the baby healthy um, with fewer interventions is ultimately the midwifery model of care. So, you know, I'm hoping that we start to see, you know, that philosophy um, mirrored through the choice of a birth attendant. So I have hope that it will come uh, for sure. That's great. In your chapter on pain relief and the dawn of doctors, I thought was really interesting. There seemed to be two growing movements simultaneously happening. So there was the rise, acceptance, and desire for twilight sleep and heavily managed care. And then on the other side, we had the natural birth movement with Dr. Lamaz and Dr. Dick Reed at the forefront with the belief that birth is normal and natural and the removal of fear can diminish that. What do you think was the divide between such vastly different philosophies and approaches to birth? Well, it goes back to that pendulum swing that I was mentioning. So Mm -hmm. twilight sleep happened in the really sort of was introduced in the Mm 19-teens, 20s, 30s. It was happening into the 40s, um, sometimes into the 50s and 60s in some places where it was, you know, hadn't yet been weeded out. But women were kind of waking up from twilight sleep, uh, literally bruised and bandaged and not remembering their birth and saying, well, that didn't feel right. There's got to be another way. And so that is why so many women had so many bad experiences under twilight sleep. That that is why the natural childbirth movement happened, because people were saying we literally don't want to be handcuffed while we're giving birth. We don't want to be wearing, you know, leather helmets like we're football players um, because we're thrashing around on the table not knowing what we're doing. Um, and we actually want to remember giving birth. It's, you know, like a seminal moment in anyone's life. How would, why would you want to be completely asleep? Um, so I think it's just, we see this repeatedly, this, this pendulum swing happen over and over and over throughout history. When a situation gets so bad, there's a reaction against it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that in some ways we're in one of those pendulum swings right now where, um, you know, having these, uh, 
hyper-technological hospital births um, is just not that appealing to, to a lot of women. Women are having bad experiences, and they're looking around saying, come on, guys, isn't there another way here? Is there something else that we can do um, that would not only just make it a more pleasant experience but produce a better outcome? I don't for think women think – some women, I feel, come back and they don't – they might have had a horrible experience, but I don't know – if they realize there's another option. You're right. You are absolutely right. I think, you know, it is there for those who seek it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the one thing I learned about birth is that um, women want to do what feels culturally acceptable. So if all of your friends are going to the hospital to have a baby, you think that's the normal thing to do and you feel like you should be doing it too. Why would you do something completely abnormal? Um, or one that isn't culturally supported. So, and, and I don't fault anyone for doing that when it comes to giving birth at all. You know, it's just, you, you kind of have to be perhaps more of an independent thinker or seeker to, you know, to wrap your head around it. Um, it would be great if, you know, maybe using health insurance as a mechanism, women are given more options, um, from a medical, you know, from that medical system, if you will, to choose. Um, you know, I, I, hopefully maybe one day we will get there. Um, the only thing that I can say is that, you know, as women share their own birth stories, even, you know, having women who have had alternate birth experiences, you know, speak up, um, you know, it was one of the things that I did hope to accomplish with the book was to show that, um, you know, women have been giving birth since the beginning of time and every culture thinks that their way of doing it is the best way. And every generation thinks their way of doing it is the best way. So at the end of the day, if we can just pause and say, you know, it hasn't always been like this, it won't always be like this. And someone else thinks they can do it better. You know, how do we, how do we just kind of like soak that up and accept it and make some decisions on our own? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause one thing I was surprised is that even though some care providers were wary about the twilight sleep, it's, you know, higher class women were seeking that. And so then other women were seeking to kind of like what you said about celebrities, celebrities are seeking scheduled C-sections. Therefore more your average woman would seek that too. So I was surprised that there was um, a desire for something like twilight sleep when everything I've read and seen seems like it was a horrible experience. Yeah. But again, if you think about it from the pendulum perspective, <laughs> This was the Victorian age where women were expected to have enormous families without much choice. And so you're on your 12th birth, and maybe it's with a baby you didn't really want to have, and you're feeling totally oppressed, and, um, you know, you're you're stuck in the house all day and anemic, and maybe your ribs are deformed by corsets and everything else. So, you know, the thought of a painful birth. Um, what could what could be less appealing? But, yeah, uh, I guess I was thinking more like Twilight Sleep in the 40s and stuff. Like I realized like my mom was probably born from my grandmother with Twilight Sleep. And I, my brother was born in the, uh, 1970. I, I wonder, because I asked my mom about our births. Now, I was very quick and almost born on steroid drive. As a Boston person, you could appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> so That's close to Mass General, right? Is that what you said? Beth Israel, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, she's like, you're almost born. She's like, they didn't have time to prep me. And I heard that story for years. And now I'm like, oh, prep, they used to shave the pubic hair. And when I asked about my brother, she's like, oh, yeah, I think it was natural. I don't really remember. I thought, you know, it could have been twilight sleep. You know, so this was not that, that long ago that it was, you know, possibly still being used. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was, my mother had twilight sleep for me, or it was not the full-on twilight sleep, but it was a shot of scopalamine, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, it's, it basically is an amnesiac and also helps to dull the pain. Mm-hmm. So it's like the worst of everything. You just don't even know what happened. But, um, you know, the other, I just, one other note, when you said, talked about your mother being prepped, not only would she have been shaved, but she probably also would have had an enema, yeah. which by the way has no, uh, scientific basis for being productive in any way. Mm-hmm. So just another example of crazy things happening <laughs> at the hospital. It they don't do that anymore. Me. I mean, having I, had two babies, I couldn't imagine in the middle of labor having an enema 
And then having my pubic hair shit. I don't, it just, it, it doesn't oh. sit with me. It seems like no. a really uh, poor decision on someone's part. For sure. <laughs> so is there anything else that you'd like to add? We really covered quite a bit of what your incredible book covered. Is there anything that you, uh, anything else you want women to know about the book or about your intentions about the book or just in general about birth? Well, one, the one other thing I will add is that people often ask me if they should give the book as a gift before someone has a baby. And I would say, yes, please, absolutely. I think there might be a perception that it is too scary. But I personally have so many friends who have read it like years before they even considered having a baby, and it completely changed their outlook on childbirth and their direction in planning for birth. So, and that is in my, in, you know, how I think that, the book can have its greatest impact if it's read before you deliver. I completely so, agree. It makes someone think, really yeah. sit and think where, what direction, here's the information, what direction do I want to go? And pretty much every birth expert I've talked to, it comes back to before they're pregnant and they're deciding on their caregiver. I mean, it really right. comes out, that's the, you know, that's going to choose your direction. So I completely agree. So our, our community out there, if you are pregnant, if you know someone pregnant, what a fantastic book to give. Great baby shower gift. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, where else can people find you right now? Um, I have a, a blog, the birth book blog that you can check out. I'm also on Twitter at history of birth. Okay. We're going to put all that in our show notes. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking some time from your vacation. I really appreciate that and speaking to me and helping our community just get a, a sense of where we came from through birth and where we hope to go. Thank you so much. I think it's, you know, part of part of this whole cycle of women uh, sharing birth stories and sharing information. It's a way that we can continue to support each other, even in this modern age when we're, we feel super disconnected in many other ways. So thank you for doing this. I think it's an important thing. Oh, thank you. And for our listeners out there, if you enjoyed this, please go on to uh, uh, iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review us. And please go over to Tina Cassidy's social media and start following her. She has wonderful things to say. Well, Tina, thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. Thanks so much. Take care. Right, it. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.